Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Teaching through Ezra, I, I might have said this to you guys already, um, but in my time of leading Capital City Church, this is the first time I've taught through a book of the Old Testament. We've taught from the Old Testament topically, but not ever actually taught through a book. And it's been wonderful to study it. It's been rewarding to teach it. And um, my prayer is that God would just continue to, to deepen within us just the truth. And um, what struck me, and I'll remind us of it a couple of times throughout this morning, but Paul's words to the Corinthians where he says, these things were written for you as examples and as a warning sign. As examples and as a warning. And it just struck me, and I, it's going to have particular impact in what I want to say this morning, but as I've been studying through the book of Ezra each week, and um, I, I just can't help but be reminded of that reality time and time and time again. And so even though we live in the new covenant and the joy of the new creation, which is a joy, it is a benefit, church, to be called as one of his own in this day and age. And as much as that is true, there is still so much that is for us in the Old Testament. And they have to be held, the new and the old, in tension with each other and they must be given equal placement as well. So we're looking for Jesus. So clearly as we teach through the book of Ezra, and this morning I'm going to teach on Ezra chapter 4, and I'm going to read the entirety, the entirety of chapter 4 now. No, thank you though. I appreciate that. And I think we'll have it, uh, Matthew, you'll put it up. When you're ready, bro. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esherat. Oh, shoot. I was, listen, I like it. I practiced it. I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to nail this. <laughs> Ezer Hadan, king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we, excuse me, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of as <laughs> I'm totally in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking. Um, in, the, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an... <laughs> no, stop it. Listen, that word, it's Greek for Xerxes, okay? So I'm just going to say Xerxes, okay? And, and I was going to point that out later, but I'll just say it now. And in the reign of Xerxes I, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Methidrath, and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, 
The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander of Shishmai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shishmai, Shimshai, that's close, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnipar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting and now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Verse 17, the king sent an answer. To Rehum, the commander, Emshimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men may be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until the decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went into haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Our great God, as we've sung this morning, how great is your name, how worthy are you, our Lord and God. We thank you, O Lord, for the truth of Scripture. We thank you, Father, for what you already have been speaking to us this morning. But we ask, Lord, that through these words, through this truth, this, this divine and revealed revelation of your wisdom, Lord, that you would speak to your church today. Father, assure uh, 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 us up, I pray, for this day and age that we find ourselves in. Make your church mighty. Make her strong, Lord. Make her forceful in her advancement. And may the hand of the enemy and the plans of Satan have no place among her in the name of Jesus. To the glory of your name, we pray these things. Now speak to us, our God and King, and we love you. Amen. 
I'm going to speak and give some context for chapter, two, for chapter four here, because I don't know if you picked up on it, but there is a number of names, and there aren't dates that are given, but those names are associated to dates, and I'm going to expound on that before I dig in, but, it, but before I do that, I want to just say this, that to, to summarize the entirety of what we just read in Ezra chapter four, we could distill it into this one statement, and it would be this, which is a timeless truth, that the church moves among enemies. The church moves among enemies. In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus commissions the 12 to take the gospel out to the lost tribe of Israel, he says this to him. He says, behold, which is listen, essentially. Someone recently said, I realize that you and your father both say listen all the time. And I just want to point out that Jesus said it as well. I can only do what I see my father doing. Uh, bad. Listen, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then he goes on and he gives this encouraging statement, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Likewise, in Acts chapter 14, Luke records that after being stoned and left for dead, Paul rose up and strengthened, it says, the disciples in their souls, encouraging them in the faith saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The church moves among enemies, brothers and sisters. So it should be no surprise then that when we read a text like Ezra chapter four, as I just did, that as we see that as the work of the Lord moves forward, Satan's plan is always to oppose God's church. The schemes of Satan are always against God and his work. It's always been that way, and it will continue to be so until when? Until Christ returns. So I've entitled my teaching, and I laugh because my wife's going to kill me. I've entitled my teaching this morning, which doesn't really matter, the title that is, This is the Way. And I did it just for my wife if, and my children. <laughs> my kids watch The Mandalorian and yeah, and some people in this room like to make that statement. So I literally was like, Shannon's going to kill me. I'm going to title the teaching this morning, This is the Way. <laughs> but the point is, is this, is that this is the way of Satan to oppose the work of the Lord. But let's remember this, church, that Israel's fail failure is meant to point us to a greater and truer kingdom reality. So as we saw here in Ezra, that as the work of the Lord went forward and the opposition of the enemy came against the work of the Lord and Israel, it says, ceased from their work and ceased from their labor, that should remind us and point us to something greater and truer that we, again today, live within and we experience. Where we almost expect Israel to fail and God's people to cease, now through the victory of the cross, Jesus calls and Jesus empowers his church to resist and to overcome. Are you hearing me, please? The difference in what we expect then as we read through the Old Testament and what we expect now because of the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. We expect the church to overcome. And I'll talk more about that. 
as we face opposition, as the enemy's schemes come against the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in unfolding his plan of redemption on the earth, our expectation, our faith, our hope, our confidence as his people, church, is that God will overcome the opposition. And the reason is this, because the potency of Satan's opposition has been diminished by the cross. The power that Satan has over the earth, while he still does have a hold upon it, has been limited and reduced by Christ Jesus and his victory. So this morning, as we consider Israel and Ezra 4, what I believe God wants to do is increase our resolve to embrace opposition as being part of living as God's people. We can't run from it. And as we studied 1 Peter a few series ago, Peter begins by identifying the new covenant churches as exiles and foreigners. This is who we are, church. We're exiles, we're foreigners, we're enemies of the enemy, our enemy. And with this too, I'm also asking that God will increase our faith that even though in the world we have tribulation, as Jesus said, we are of great courage because what? Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome the world. So I want to consider three things today from our text. First, I want to consider Satan's tactics because I think it behooves the people of God to study and to be aware of the ploys of the enemy. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan's schemes have always been Satan's schemes and he's not that intelligent. So I want to consider his tactics. I want to consider Israel's failures. What did Israel do or not do that caused their faith to waver? And I want to consider, lastly, our success. What's different for us now and how can we avoid the same pitfalls? And so to begin, I think it's actually really important, as I alluded to, just the, the varying names and it's, it's actually rather profound as I began to study it. What we have here is, in chapter four, is a picture of three different chronological moments. And we know it because of the names of the kings that are given to us. We have Cyrus, we have Darius, we have the guy who I stumbled over, which is Xerxes, and we have Artaxerxes. Those three, sorry, <laughs> those three names, those three names, they represent almost 100 years. So in this, in this chapter that I just read, we were literally looking at a chronology of 100 years of opposition against the work of the people. And as I began to study it, my mind was blown and I'm going, why would Ezra take the time in the middle of the story here, we're just getting into the building of the temple. In the middle of this, why would Ezra seem to kind of drop this summary of 100 years of opposition? And I believe that God wants to give us an awareness of what that is this morning and encourage our hearts through it. So verses one through four, and you can include verse 24. In fact, it can be helpful if you do this. Just look at verse four with me. It says this, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, sorry, verse five as well, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose 
all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and then jump all the way to 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. That's the, the timeline. So verses one through five and verse 24 are all inclusive of the initial building of the temple and the initial opposition of the people of the land. It covers roughly a, a period of about 15 years in those five to six verses. And then we have verse six, which stands all alone. And it says that in the reign of Xerxes, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants. That's some, between verse five and verse six, that's like 50 years in the future that we now have. And here is this record that Ezra gives us of opposition that comes against the people of God. We don't know what happened with it, perhaps nothing at that moment because there's no conclusion given, but then we jump down to verse seven and verse seven to 23 is in the time of Artaxerxes. And we're going to find as we study through Nehemiah, which we'll do next, that this is the time of Nehemiah. So here's Ezra now writing, don't forget, He's writing in the future looking backwards. This Ezra's book or Ezra's letter could have been written and or read sometime around the year of 420 BC. So again, now we're talking 80 some odd, 90 some odd years in the future of when Israel first came back to the land. So what he's doing is he's writing from the future and he's looking back or he's writing in the present and he's writing back about the past and he's giving us this snapshot of about 100 years of opposition of, against the work of the people. And why is this so important for us? I believe that in God's sovereign wisdom and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Ezra, who's, who's commonly thought to have written the book Ezra, that the man Ezra has provided for us essentially a chronology of the hostility towards God's work and various attempts to thwart God's process, as I said, for about a hundred years. Brothers and sisters, it's a record of opposition. Why would God give to us in this letter or why would he see it fitting to provide us with such insight? Because church, it is the way in the nature of the church. God wants us to be aware that as his plans go forth, as I already said, that it is met by opposition of the enemy. And, and thus, we must ready ourselves and stabilize ourselves and make sure that our feet are planted so firmly in the truth that when the opposition comes, we aren't like Israel. That the work doesn't cease, that the discouragement doesn't become so overbearing that we stop and we lose faith and we lose sight of what God has called us to. Can we find some present day context for that? Right? Who's found some discouragement in the last two to three years and has, has decided or perhaps struggled with wanting to stop, wanting to capitulate, wanting to just lay down for a minute, let me catch my breath and I'll stand back up again. Church, that isn't the way that God has called us to. And I won't say it again, don't worry. What he's called us to is steadfastness. He's called us to perseverance. Out of what, our own effort? No, the empowerment of the spirit of God that lives within us. The power of the spirit of God, which again comes back to, why is this so important? Why is the gathering of the church so important? Why is the biblical expression of the church as God gives us, why is that so important? Because the nature of the church is so vitally significant 
in this day and age and into the future ages that are to come. We must understand who we are. And when we understand who we are, then we're better equipped to understand how we are to be in light of the day and age. Amen? Do we agree with that? All right. Fantastic. Then we can keep going. So as I said, three things I want to consider. Satan's tactics, Israel's failure, and our success. So with that context of, of chapter four, and I ha- sorry, I'm just going to say this again. Make sure that you guys are studying and reading on your own. You can't rely on me to give you everything that you need because you're not going to get it all from me. I do my best. But in 30 to 45 minutes every week, that's not enough. You guys should be digging in, digging deep. I tell you, my mind was blown this week as I was just sitting there and studying. When I, when I began to get the historical context for chapter four, I, literally it caused me to worship in this moment. I was like, God, you are amazing. What could be so confusing? And I, I had to wrestle through the dates. And I was like writing timetables down in my notebook. And I was like, okay, I got to get all this synthesized so that I can actually articulate it in a way that's helpful. But my mind was blown and it led me to worship. Church, study the word of God. Read the word of God. But don't just read it. Study it. And it is deeper than you and I could ever go. Ever go. Which is wonderful. So, with that said, there's two strategies when we consider Satan's tactics that were employed that we saw here in Ezra uh, Ezra 4 that were in opposition to the people's efforts. The first was a strategy that was more covert, and the second was much more overt. At first pass, verses 1 through 4, and I don't know if if you felt the way that perhaps I did as well. Verses one through four can seem like a rather ungracious response to seemingly a hospitable gesture. Hey, let us help you build the temple of the Lord. What are you talking about? You've got no right in building this. This is ours to build, right? Did anybody read that? And you're like, man, that's a bit harsh. Why like, you know, the vehement rebuffing of, hey, let's, let's help you out here. The people of the land, let us... Build with you, for we worship your God as you do. Think about that for a moment. The people of the land, let us build with you because we worship your God as you do. Church, how many times do we hear statements similar to that in today's day and age? Efforts and attempts by those outside of the faith strategically put forth to dilute and to compromise the purity and the faith of the worship of God's people. Right? This is Satan's way. This is what he does. Beware, church, of that which is outside that tries to come in. And now that might sound very exclusive, but don't hear what I'm not saying. Eastern mysticism, philosophies, business-like structures, politics, cultural ideologies and ways of life and ways of doing church. We even talked about this a few years back when we did our study through the, the arguments that we, the church comes against within culture. And we taught about ecumenism. Do you guys remember that? For those of you who are here about three years ago, ecumenism is, is within the church itself is this, this modern day pronouncement that, that, 
the non-denominational church and the Roman Catholic church and the United Methodist church, we all just need to come together and be one because we're all the same. We all worship the same God. Let us help you build your church. Let us labor with you because we worship the same God as you do. Syncretism church, which is the fusion of faith with culture and this idea that we take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I'm going to borrow from here and I'm going to build a theology that is the church itself. Pluralism church that wants to come from outside in that says there is no hell, that says that it's, that it's, it always lead to Jesus, that ultimately it's the love of God that wins, that saves all mankind. We've heard these things. I'm not just grabbing things. I'm literally naming, within the last five to 10 years, arguments that have been railed against the historical church and the way she's been. And so, this people of the land, it's, it's fascinating. We don't have time to read it this morning, but you can write this down if you're taking notes. You'll find the settling of this people in 2 Kings chapter 17. When the, when the kingdom of Israel falls to the king of Assyria, there's a strategic plan where he repopulates and resettles the area with other people groups who were brought captive and taken over by his kingdom. And it says this, it goes through this, this whole thing and it, it talks about actually strategically um, a lot like the king of Persia that sent the current exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple where he did it, if you might remember as I introduced this, he did it for a bit of placating the gods, to look good in front of the gods. So he wanted to basically allow everybody to worship God, their own God of their own land, as they deem fitting. And he thought it would keep him in the good graces of all the gods. Well, we find the same thing with the king of Persia. So what he does is he resettles all of these people in 2 Kings chapter 17. And with it, he says, you're free to worship your God as you see fit. Worship the God of your land. Well, what happens is he carries all the people of Israel away and the Lord sends lions into the area and starts killing people with lions. How'd you like to see that today? And so the king of, the king of Assyria says, wait a minute, let's grab one of those priests that we carried off and we're gonna send him back and he's gonna teach the people that have repopulated the ways of the God of the land, the people of Israel. And so he teaches them, but it says this at the end in verse 33. It says that they feared the Lord, but they also served their own God after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So syncretism. That's essentially what ends up happening. Fast forward 100 years later, and this is the people group who have come and said, hey, we've been worshiping here. We, we, and remember, I talked about this when they were rebuilding the altar. The purity of the church and the specificity by which God was calling his people to worship could not be compromised by outside voices that would do something different. Even so much as where they said, we've been sacrificing here. Well, you haven't been sacrificing rightly. It isn't true worship if it doesn't, isn't done the way that God has prescribed and called his people to. And this is the same issue here for, for Zerubbabel and for Joshua. And thank God that they had the discernment and the wisdom to understand, no, 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 no. This is an outside voice that's coming in to dilute the purity of the people's worship that God was so intent on establishing or reestablishing again. Brothers and sisters, it is the same for us today. 
which is why we must understand not only the nature of the church in terms of who she is, but what has God called us to in terms of our worship? What is right worship? I was just talking with a couple of the guys in between the break, and I was saying, man, historically speaking, the Lord's table was the centerpiece of the gathered church. And it wasn't until the days of the, of the, um, 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 the revivals when the preaching of the word became more prominent, but it was always the Lord's table. Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying like, what I'm not saying is like, well, maybe I am. Because I was going to say that like small things matter, or you know, like the minutia doesn't matter, but it does actually. It does matter to the Lord. I mean, where the table is positioned in the room, you know, and the lights, that doesn't matter to the Lord. But the heart of the individual matters. The way that we take communion matters. Who takes communion matters, right? We understand that. When Paul gives instruction to the Corinthians, man, you guys have been taking it. Some people are sick and some have even died because you've been taking it wrong. Because in your sinfulness and unrepentance and, and those that are not in belief and, and et cetera, et cetera, these things matter. Specificity matters. Now I'm teaching something I already taught. But you guys get the point. So here we are, Zerubbabel and Yeshua, and they have the, the, the discernment to see, no, this is an outside voice that's wanting to come in and to pollute. And so when this fails, so this kind of covert operation of the enemy to just get these voices that seem to be right to come in. When that fails, what does he take up? He takes up a much more overt tactic. He goes, all right, that doesn't work. We move on to plan B. Cutting supply chains, literally. They were getting the wood. Remember, the wood, the wood for the temple was months out because it's, it's being delivered by sea, having to come through the port towns and be carried in because there's no wood there in Jerusalem that's required for the Lord's or that's necessary for the building. So we've got supply chains that are cut off, fear tactics, maybe even threats, we don't know. It just says here in chapter four that they were discouraged and that the people of the land made them afraid to build. I would imagine some types of threats were leveraged against them. It talks about bribing civil authorities. What the heck? And then in the, in the, the verses later for the, for the later opposition, We've got these really strategic and slick letters that are being written, uh, you know, flattering the king and coming about in this way so that they would win favor with him through their flattery and, and talking about, oh, you know, a loss of revenue. We don't want a loss of revenue. Man, I feel like we could just stop and think of all the ways in this modern age where those types of tactics are coming against the church even still. We had a building down in North Sacramento on Del Paso Boulevard. We had the hardest time. We fought the city, literally had to get the Pacific Justice Institute to come and to get on our side because they wouldn't give us a special use permit. The special use permit says, oh, you're a church? It's gonna cost you $14,000 to call yourself a church and to meet in a building. Why? That's oh, a certificate we give you. Okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll honor the law of the land. But then they didn't wanna give it to us. And they fought us tooth and nail until we actually had to fight back. It was like leveraging all of their energy against us as a church to keep us away. And one of the reasons was because, well, your doors are dark throughout the week and we're gonna miss out on the tax revenue because you're nonprofit. I mean, it was like all these things and you're just, you're, you're sitting there going, man, opposition after opposition after opposition. It's, it's wild. So all of these things happen 
Fear tactics, as I said, these letters that were written, it's like an all-out smear campaign in the worst way that lasted for decades upon decades. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It was a hundred years, essentially, of these things taking place. Church, when Satan's attempts are thwarted, he just moves on to the next tactic. He doesn't get frustrated, and he probably does a little bit of both. He keeps on with the first, you know, that subversive stuff, and then he just pounds you with the more in-your-face stuff, trying to get you to bend, trying to get you to stop, wanting the church to stop in its tracks, not wanting to see the kingdom of God advanced. How long have we heard that the church is called bigoted, intolerant, narrow-minded, anachronistic, misogynistic, tyrannical, throat, pick out some others. How many times and how long have we heard those things? And it's ramping up more and more and more and more. I'm telling you, the idea of elder-led churches where the conviction of Scripture is that men are called to lead the church, that's becoming more and more and more taboo. Even within, you know, streams of evangelicalism where you thought that was holding tried and true. I'm telling you, these, the, it's insidious the way that culture works and sneaks in. How alert do we need to be, church? Man, so alert and prepared that we can withstand the onslaught that the enemy has because he's going to continue and continue and continue and continue. And you and I who are sitting here this morning who have been called to this Capital City Church, our responsibility together is to lock arms and is to lean in. And I tell you, I am not willing to give up an inch of what we hold in truth. You can, you can count on that from me. I will fight tooth and nail as far as God. What's that? And Georgia too. We're doing it together. It's true. And it's important for you guys to know that. I believe that's part of who God's called us to as a faith community. Uncompromising, unwavering, dedicated to the truth, unwilling to capitulate. Amen. So the tactics of the enemy, they're covert, they're overt, they're subversive. It's like, it's slick, it's cunning, you know, but we know that they're there and let's be on the lookout for it. So Israel's failure. So then how did Israel respond? Ultimately, we know that the opposition ended in Israel's failure and the work ceasing as by verses 23 and verse 24. Now again, remember, verse 23 and 24 are happening decades, 80, 90 years apart from each other. And man, when I read verse 23 and it just says, it wasn't even that like the frustration came and they relented. It says this, by force and power, they made them cease. God, I pray that we would not have to fight that fight. But church, we might have to. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you resolved in yourself enough in truth? Are you sure enough in your footing to withstand the force and the power that might come against God's church. Only by the grace of God will we be prepared for that. And then, of course, again, in verse 24, it says that it then did cease. And I would say this, I believe that the church is in failure, or excuse me, is in danger today of failing in the same way as Israel did. If she's not grounded properly in the truth, I fear that she's gonna be overrun and deluded by culture to cease to actually be the true church, at which point I believe that her foundation to stand and resist 
will be gone or at least compromised. That's what I fear is happening. And as I said, we gotta stand, not just me. We together have to stand and fight for the ground that is the truth of scripture. Were you guys with me on that? Yeah, that's our rally cry. Every inch, hold it. I'm gonna start painting my face like William Wallace and Braveheart. I'll leave the kilt out though. Hold the line. <laughs> so three warning signs. Again, remember, Paul says that these things were written for you as examples and as warning signs. So Israel's failure, the, the first warning sign was this. They failed because they lost faith. It says that the people were discouraged and afraid to build. Brothers and sisters, faith takes what is present before us and allows God to tell us how we ought to think rightly about it. Faith takes the opposition, brings it before God and says, God, how should I think about this? How should I concern myself with it? How should I stand in this moment? That's what faith does. Both personally, but also within the church. Faith originates in God. And because it originates in God, it's fixed in God. Our faith has an anchor. Our faith has a place. Our faith not only has a source in that the faith that we have comes from God, it's imparted to us. It is the grace of God given to us, but it also has an aim and a focus and a goal, and that is Christ Jesus himself. It takes our opposition, and it reminds us that God is greater Faith reminds us that God is stronger. Faith reminds us that what the in enemy intends for harm, God uses for good. That's what faith does. And faith keeps us moving forward when everything around us says, stop, slow down, halt. This is where Israel first failed. They lost faith. And what happens when you lose faith is the second thing, they failed because they lost faith and they lost faith, or and as a result of losing faith, they lost sight of God. So their second failure was that they lost sight of God. Like Peter on the water coming to Jesus, what happens? He loses faith and he, his eyes become fixed on the waves that are around him. Why is that story in there? So that we would try to go out and walk on our pools? Now, why, does, why is that story given to us in the gospel? Why was that modeled for us? Because by faith, we do great things. And faith that is fixed on Jesus, and what is Jesus' call to Peter, is to come to him, to look to me, to walk to me, and don't look at the things that are around. But what does Peter do? He looks at the circumstances that surround him, and he begins to sink. This is what happened with Israel. They lost faith, and because they lost faith, they lost sight of God. But Israel needed to be reminded of the opening words that we read in Ezra 1.1. That it was God who had stirred the heart of the king. That it was the sovereign providence of God that was moving upon mankind to accomplish his will. When we lose sight of God, we lose sight of the fact that God is sovereign and he uses all things to bring about his will. The happy providences 
and the sad providences as well. They forgot that it was God who was working even through the centuries before as I laid out in our first week of this study and just the history of Israel. The people of Israel had forgotten just as quick as they had been called to remember, they had forgotten the God who cares, the God who protected them in the wandering, the God who delivered them from, the sla- from slavery in Egypt, the God who parted the Red Sea and made a way for them, who provided manna, who provided water from the rock, right? How quickly they had forgotten the stories of their grandparents and great-grandparents and ancestors. And third, the, the, the third failure of Israel, which is a warning sign to us, because they, li- they, they lost faith, which caused them to lose sight of God, then the result of this was them losing sight of the work that they were called to. Brothers and sisters, may we not lose faith, nor sight, nor sight of the work that we're called to. We need to remember this, church. But see, again, where, where Israel failed, this is where I want for us to land today. Where Israel failed, Jesus has made the way. Jesus has gone before us. Jesus was victorious. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to finish with this. I told you Hebrews has been a beautiful parallel as I've studied through Ezra. And I've shared from Hebrews 12, but I want to pick up on some verses just following my most recent reference. Because you guys all remember all my random references, right? You guys were going, yeah, what was that reference you made? Hebrews 12, look at verses, the last half of verse 1 through verse 3. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so what? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, church, the success that lies before us, that, that, that God has provided to his church is both simple and it is certain. It's simple in that it only requires one thing, faith. Because from faith comes everything else. It's simple, church. Our success only requires one thing, faith. And faith in who? Christ. Which is the only true faith, I must say. So in this verse, in, in, in these verses here of Hebrews 1 through 3, the very two first aspects of Israel's failure are righted in Christ Jesus. He says this, the Hebrews writer does, he says, look to Jesus, fix your eyes on him, make him the object of your, fo- of your focus and aim, and align yourselves with his will and his truth and obey his commands. That's what look to Jesus is. Look to Jesus. Fix your gaze upon him. Make him your anchor. Make him your aim. Make him your source of certainty and surety and hope and joy and everything else that he has 
allowed and given himself to be for us. That's what it means to look to him. Brothers and sisters, it isn't just a momentary thing. It's a constant thing. Because what ha- we, we, have to, we can only surmise as to perhaps what took place in all those years where the work continued in the face of opposition. How did it continue? Because they knew that what they had set their hands to was right and true and what God had called them to. In other words, their sight was fixed on God. Look to Jesus. For if you do, it will be as he promised Israel in the beginning in Deuteronomy. It says this, the Lord's promise to his people. If they would obey, if they would follow his command, if they would keep him as their object, he says, he will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. And he will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the works of your hands. I want that. Who doesn't want that? What does it require, church? Look to Jesus. Keep your faith. Know him as the source. Know him as the creator, as Hebrews says, as the author and the perfecter, the finisher, the certain finisher of your faith. So the simplicity of it is that it just requires faith. And the certainty of it is this, and this is where I'll finish. Mark 3 says, Jesus says to the, to, to the people, he says that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. You guys remember that? Remember that text? There's a picture of that in Revelation 20. We, John sees a picture of the binding of the enemy, as I said earlier, where the power of Satan is diminished and limited to what God would allow. In other words, the binding has taken place. The strong man has been bound, therefore his people can now enter and plunder. And this was Paul's words in Colossians chapter three, or chapter two. He says that, speaking of Jesus on the cross, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's finished work, church. That's the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. The enemy being triumphed over already. The enemy being limited and reduced in what he would be allowed to do. Is that not good news? So as our, as our aim is fixed on him and as our hope is fixed on him and as we look to Jesus Christ, the certainty of our own heart says, man, you know what? What God, what the enemy does, God allows. To some degree in his sovereignty, God can only be sovereign if he's sovereign over all things. And that includes the enemy as well. And so for us as a church, as we lock arms and as we take the mission of the gospel into our neighborhoods and as friends together or as, as brothers and sisters or as family members, as we take the, 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 the mission of the gospel to the world, our certainty is, man, God has overcome. We'll, yes, we'll face tribulation. Yes, we'll face opposition. We know that, but I'm ready for it. We're ready for it. And I wanted to just finish with this. I was, um, I've got this, I have this book and it's a, it is a, um, a collection of Winston Churchill's uh, speeches that he gave. And the book of the title, the title of the book is actually Never Give In. And I wanted to just read to you a, a, a quote to end this morning. And it says this. 
Never give in. He's speaking to high school students, essentially. What's the equivalent of high school? Secondary school. Thank you. The Brit couldn't even tell me that. <laughs> he looks at me with a blank stare. So he's speaking to like high school age. Yeah, this is obviously in light of the, of the war. He says, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Church, let's leave us with that today. Never give in. Never, 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 never. Don't yield. Don't bend. Don't capitulate. Why? Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome the enemy, and there's nothing greater than him and his authority. Amen? Stand with me, please. Our great Father, we thank you so much for just the reality of what I have said this morning. That you are victorious, that you are mighty, that you are strong, that you are overcoming through your cross. Lord, that the enemy, he has been bound. And Father, we don't understand all of your ways and what you do, but Lord, what we do understand and what we hold to is the truth that you have given to us, which is that if we keep our faith in you, if we keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord, that we can withstand anything that comes our way. Father, I pray that by the grace of God, you would, you would put within us a resolve to be a people who are sure-footed, to be a people who are, who are also front-footed in that we lean into the opposition, Lord. We're not caught off guard by it, Lord, but, but we are ready and we are able because of what you have empowered us to. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are fearful of opposition, Lord, for those of us who are weary today from opposition that they've come against, I pray that you would strengthen us this day. I pray, Lord, that you would put within us, Father, just a joy of being your children in your people, regardless of the external circumstances, because our joy is fixed in the certainty of what will one day be. The final expression where you put the enemy under your feet once and for all time, where he is bound completely for eternity, Lord God. And we won't lose sight of that and we'll live with hope, and we'll live with faith, and we'll live with, with joy and expectation, Lord, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we love you, and so I pray that you would strengthen us in our love for each other, strengthen us in our, in our care for one another, strengthen us, Father, that we would be mindful of each other, thoughtful of one another, considerate of one another, Lord, bearing one another's burdens, Father, and thus building each other up in love. Keep us as a church, Lord. Keep us from division. Keep us from the schemes of the enemy that would want to come in and, and pollute our worship, Lord. Keep us, we pray. Father, we love you. Father, there's none greater than you. And you are deserving of all of our worship, of all of our lives, Lord, and we gladly give that to you now. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.